0: Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. It is a real joy to be back with you here at C4 Church. So enjoyed my time with you last year and delighted that I've been asked to be back today, really appreciate your pastor, specifically John and Dave. And so it's a delight to be here. Just a few things about me and our ministry before I pray and then we'll start, but I'm married to Amy. We've been married 20 years. We have four kids. Ethan's almost 17. Our daughter Abby's 14, and then we were surprised with a package deal with twin girls, uh they're 8. Yeah, I was in Vancouver speaking 9 years ago. My wife called me and said, "Have you seen, you know, the picture I just sent?" And I said, no. I, I answered the phone. I was on the platform to speak. And uh, the worship was going. But she'd called like six or seven times. And I'm like, what's going on? And she said, well, there's more than one. And I said, there's, there's more than one what? And uh, then she said, more than one kid. I said, how, how many more than one are we? And she said, one. I said, one more twins. I got it now. All right. And uh, so they're a real blessing. And a delight to our lives. I've been in downtown Hamilton for 23 years, serving in one of Kenda's poorer communities, and it's been a joy to be there. We do Christmas ham for soccer leagues, and uh, in the uh, in the kind of the transition of the neighborhood, we're building a brand new facility downtown. I talked a bit about that last year. It's now being built, and it includes 45 apartments for people that have nowhere to live. So supportive, affordable health apartments right in the building. We're excited about that. And uh, delighted to be doing that. And just to, to give an idea why, the stats came out recently that if you live in a neighboring uh, community in Hamilton, a suburb uh, in Flamborough, the average median income there for a couple, a household income, is 134000 And in the neighborhood we're ministering in, ready, 134000 there, neighborhood we're ministering in 20500 Right? So you see the difference. So we have some stuff on our website, and it's been a delight to be here. You can check that out if that's something that the Lord leads you to. Let me pray. Thank you that you are God, and Spirit of God, we ask that you would choose to take your word and change our lives with it. We need you. We can't open this book without you, and so we pray that you would have your way, for we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I love dumb crook stories. I love looking at dumb crook stories and reading them, and you know, I didn't tell this one in the first service, but one of my favorite ones is, I just remember this guy, Jeff, he was being chased by the police, he was running away from them and as he was running, 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 he saw that there was like this gated community and he thought it was in Florida. He would just leap the fence and he'd then be in the gated community and he'd just kind of get lost in the crowd, he'd be fine. He left the f- fence and found out he was in a nudist colony and they found him quite easily. Um, I think of Tom, Tom was in Arkansas, when Tom was in Arkansas, they, uh, he was there, he came up to a truck With his sawed-off shotgun, he took the truck and he stole it. And uh, the police were chasing it but quite baffled because what Tom had done in his haste is he thought he'd stolen an armored truck, but he'd actually stolen a Bull America truck full of mop heads going to where they were going to. I think of uh, Rick. This is a great story. This is a few years ago. And uh, Rick had registered himself in for a hotel, was staying the night, and at 1 in the morning he went to the front desk Where there used to be more cash, and he robbed them, and he left. But the police found him easily because he'd registered with his ID and, yeah, isn't that great? And credit card. Like you gotta ask yourself, right? This one, this one though, is is my utmost favorite. Ah. Oh, no, no, I'm not going to stop, but I can tell this one. Is, uh, I got another one, too, with the guy that got stuck in the chimney at Christmas. It's awesome. He thought he was Santa, but he wasn't. And the fire department, police, everybody had to get him out. Anyway, uh, this guy, Nigel, he was scouting out. This is in Toronto a few years ago. Scouting out homes in Toronto to break in uh, when no one would be home. And it was around Christmas time as well. So he went into a house to his surprise and to the wife's surprise. She was still home. Um, he thought the family had left but she hadn't gone she was going to this family gathering later so he's shocked she's there doesn't know what to do and um, so he says he's there to rob her and she goes I have no money and uh, he goes well I need money and she goes well I can write you a check and, uh, and come on come on what's your name how do you spell that oh yeah yeah and uh, the police arrested him soon after I like dumb crook stories I just love dumb crook stories The life of our Savior is fascinating. He's born in a manger in a stable among the animals. And he dies on a cross between criminals. Have you ever thought of the book ending of his life like that? Born in a manger between animals, dies on a cross between criminals. And the Word of God says this. If your Bible is Luke 23, but it will be on the slides. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him, that's Jesus, to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, there they crucified him, along with the criminals. One on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God. The chosen one, the soldiers also came up and they mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Two criminals are hanging on either side of Christ. The book of Matthew tells us that at the beginning of his crucifixion, they're both mocking him. They're both laughing at him. They're both jeering him. Now these criminals were probably insurrectionists or murderers. You were not crucified for petty thievery. No one would kill you for that. You would not be executed for that. But you would be executed for insurrection against the Roman rule. You would be executed for murder. And so there's a capital offense that's gone on. And Jesus is treated as an offender who's created or committed a capital offense. He's already been whipped. Pieces of shrapnel would have been along that whip so that when it came off his back it would lacerate into shreds crown of thorns has been placed on his head. He's been beaten numbers of times. And as he comes to this place where he's hanging between two criminals, they're mocking him. And as that is happening, the others are as well. The Word of God says that they were there. Jesus called out, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing as they mocked him, as they made fun of him. They divide up his clothes and they do so by casting lots. We rightly depict Jesus on a crucifix with a cloth. But that would not have been there. You hung on a crucifix naked. It was a form of humiliation, not just a form of torture. They were humiliating Him. Jesus went through the worst form of torture and humiliation known to humanity. And they mock Him. You've saved others, can't you save yourself? If you are the Son of God, the chosen one the soldiers mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar. If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. I don't know about you, but I know in my experience, when I bring up Jesus, it can be controversial. I can talk about Christmas handovers. I can talk about soccer leagues. I can talk about our weeks of day camp in the summer. And the fact that a few weeks ago, we just took like 80 kids up to camp with Jituin, uh up in... Uh, Huntsville where many of them have never been anywhere before and sponsor them to go and people will be like, yeah, that's amazing. I even have been asked to speak at the National Housing Day for Toronto. I did that a couple of years ago and for Hamilton, other cities. But the moment I bring up Jesus in a conversation, the moment he's the centerpiece, raises all kinds of controversy. All of a sudden everybody has an opinion and <clears throat> nobody wants it to be ours. Listen to these quotes. H. G. Wells, I am a historian, I am not a believer, but I must confess as a historian that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. Gandhi, I cannot say that Jesus was uniquely divine. He was as much God as Krishna or Rama or Muhammad, Gorbachev. Jesus was the first socialist, the first to seek a better life for mankind. Woody Allen. If Jesus came back and saw what was being done in his name, he wouldn't be able to stop throwing up. John Lennon. We're more popular than Jesus now. When we were having our first child, Ethan, so this is now 17 years ago and a bit, we went to prenatal classes to figure out how to give birth. I mean, I figured out how to support my wife in giving birth. I wasn't giving any birth. And, uh, you know, it was run by public health, and we got to the place where we were to go, and it was a church. And we knew that, but run by public health, and you get there, and in the foyer, there was all these signages. And, of course, like any church, there's stuff about Jesus. So the guys, the expectant dads have all gathered on the signs. When I get there, they're actually making fun of Jesus. So I was about to interject when uh, they asked us, the lady in charge asked us to all go inside. And she said, expectant dad's over here, expectant mom's over here. And introduce yourself, who you are, what you do, you know, kind of that kind of stuff, right? Oh, yeah, it was awesome. So I'm third person in. So we get to me, and I'm like, my name's Dwayne Klein, and I'm a minister. And I believe that the Jesus Christ whom you are mocking in the hallway is the King of kings and Lord of lords in charge of the entire universe. This is what I said. <coughs> I was younger then. And, um, and I said, who will judge us all for everything we've said and done? Like, it, this, is, it, this is exactly what happens. The next guy doesn't even tell me his name. He's like... Man, I didn't mean to mock him in the hallway. I go to church and I shouldn't have been doing that, right? Right? And so now he's apologizing and asking God to forgive him. The next guy's like, I go to church too, man, but it's been a while. I shouldn't have been. I'm like, and the lady comes over like, what is going on at your table right now? Right? Like, Jesus. All kinds of controversy surrounding him. And verse 38, 39, 38, my glasses, I don't have them on right now whatever the next verse is, says there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. This is the king of the Jews. Now they put that there to mock him, but indeed we know that's who he is. So one of the criminals who hung there was hurling insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? We're under the same sentence. We're punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. Both criminals in the account in Matthew were hurling insults at him. and in the Luke's account, we find that the one stopped, and he rebukes the other criminal who's hurling insults at Jesus and says, "Stop. Don't you fear God? Like, we're getting what we deserve. We're being punished justly. He's done nothing wrong. Don't you fear God? I mean God, if God is God, is not just a God that we are to love. He's also a God we are to fear. I mean if you want a little exercise today, go on Bible Gateway on your tablet or phone and just Google fear of God in the Bible. And see how many verses of Scripture talk about the necessity that we fear God. That we fear God. I mean because He's God. He's holy. He's without sin, without blemish, without stain. He's other. I mean, God is so powerful, so utterly powerful, that he's created everything by speaking it into existence. That's pretty powerful. God said, let there be sun. It showed up. Moon, it showed up. Stars, they showed up. Told the seas how far they would go. The mountains where they could be. Created vegetation and animals and us at the pinnacle of his creation. And if you don't think that's spectacular, this afternoon, just go out somewhere and try something simple, like where there is no grass, just say, let there be a blade of grass and see what happens. And if you think something happens, talk to your pastor. God is magnificently powerful and superior. And he holds within his hands all of eternity. That is God. And the criminal that's there hanging on the cross has seen something so unique in Jesus that he looks at the other criminal and says, stop. This guy is so vitally connected to God. Don't you fear God? Why are you mocking him? This man who's hanging here on this cross is somehow so vitally connected to God that when you're mocking him, you're mocking God. He gets it. You see, so does our culture. Well, you may not agree with me, but let me explain. Our culture so understands who God is that they have worked at every level to eliminate Him from existence. I mean, we've moved to the place where we have to believe one of two things if we don't believe God created. We either believe nothing, given as much time as you wanted to, could actually create something, or we believe that matter existed in one form in an inorganic state... And that somehow it was able to transition to an organic state and give life. I mean, we've moved to these preposterous theories in order to say there is no God. Because we don't want a supreme being. We don't want someone we should fear. We don't want someone to be accountable to. Listen to these quotes. Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion. We are all atheists about most of the gods that humanity has believed in, has ever believed in. Some of us just go one God further. Christopher Hitchens, who died a few years ago, God is not great. Though I dislike to differ with such a great man, Voltaire, was simply ludicrous when he said that if God did not exist, it would be necessary to invent him. The human invention of God is the problem to begin with. Thomas Nagel, this is an amazing quote. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right in my belief it's that i hope there is no god i don't want there to be a god i don't want the universe to be like that that's what the world has done let's just eliminate god out of the equation we don't want to be accountable to him we don't want a supreme being we don't want someone we have to fear and yet the criminal gets it don't don't you fear god we're being punished justly. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. In my early years of ministry, I would work with young offenders. I'd go into the prison system and work there. and it was a, I actually really enjoyed it. The province gave credit for me teaching the Bible to these kids because so many would come out. And then one day, one of the guards said, hey, we should send guards in with you when you're doing your Bible. So I said, that's fine. I wonder why. I've been doing this for like six months and you've never sent a guard in. And they said, well, we're worried that one day they might take you hostage, and none of us are in the room. I said, yeah, then send the guards in. That'd be great. Yeah, they can come in. I don't want to be taken hostage. Sounds like a good idea. Um, but every time I'd meet a new young offender, they'd be like, I shouldn't be here. I'd be why shouldn't you be here? Well, I just did break and ender, and I assaulted the man that was in the house. I said, yeah, you should be here, right? And they would constantly try to tell me what they had done, and why they didn't deserve to be incarcerated. This criminal's just hurling insults at Jesus, but the other one gets it. He's done nothing wrong. We're getting what our Ds deserve. He's done nothing wrong. Now imagine growing up in that home. Jesus absolutely sinless and you're his half brother James and something's gone awry in the house and you go to mom Mary and you say it's Jesus fault and now you're in trouble because she knows you did it and you've lied about it. Right? This man's done nothing wrong. This man's done nothing wrong. He totally understands. He totally gets what's going on. Maybe it's because as he was watching and heard Jesus say, Father, forgive them. They don't know what he was doing, what they're doing. He saw grace and love coming from a cross. Maybe it's because at this point in time, when he looks over at his mom, Jesus does, at, at, at Mary. He asks John to look after her. And he sees this love coming from Jesus. Maybe it's because anyone else who was ever crucified in their torture would try to urinate on the people that were killing them. Would try to get their blood on them. Would try to spit on them. And the only things coming from Jesus were love and grace and peace and hope. That's all he could see coming from that cross. But for whatever reason, in Jesus' dying moments, this thief sees that this man is someone who's so connected to God that when you're mocking him, you're mocking God. Don't you fear God. He's done nothing wrong. Do you know you can sense that in our culture? There are times when our culture realizes we've gone too far. The elimination of God has led to too big a mess. And at times, in the elimination of God and in wanting God not to exist, our own culture feels the tension. Listen to these quotes. Stephen Hawking's. The odds against the universe like ours emerging out of something like the Big Bang are enormous. I think there are clearly religious implications. It would be very difficult to explain why the universe would have begun in just the way or just this way, except as an act of God who intended to create beings like us. He could say that, but you know, he denied that there was God. Uh, Kai Nielsen. Suppose you suddenly hear a big bang and you ask me what made the bang, and I reply, nothing, it just happened. You would not accept that. In fact, you would find my reply quite unintelligible. Steve Jobs, near his death. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, maybe your conscience endures. This is an incredible quote, it's, 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 it's a lengthy one. David Berlinski, he's an agnostic, secular agnostic. Has anyone provided proof of God's inexistence? Not even close. Has quantum cosmology explained the emergence of the universe or why it is here? Not even close. Have our sciences explained why our universe seems to be fine-tuned to allow for the existence of life? Not even close. Are physicists and biologists willing to believe in anything, so long as it is not religious thought? Close enough. Has rationalism and moral thought provided us with an understanding of what is good, what is right, and what is moral? Not close enough. Has secularism in the terrible 20th century been a force for good? Not even close to being close. Is there a narrow and oppressive orthodoxy in the sciences close enough? Does anything in the sciences or their philosophy justify the claim that religious belief is irrational, not even in the ballpark? Is scientific atheism, a frivolous exercise in intellectual contempt, dead on? Even they sense the tension. Even they understand. I mean, you hear it in the lyrics of songs. In us pushing God out of existence. We don't know what to live for anymore, and everything seems utterly meaningless. You can hear Ecclesiastes, Shawn Mendes, in his song, In My Blood. Hear these words. They're not on the screen, and I'm not going to sing them. (laughs) Just quick. I was at a seniors meeting, hundreds of seniors. They got to this verse. You know how seniors sometimes do on the second verse like the women or the men they said on the second verse the pastors two of us at the front should sing a duet and I thought Lord no so he and I sang out the second verse and it was done and I was the speaker that day and this 92 year old 82 uh, year old lady got up and she said well Dwayne Pastor Klein we all thank the Lord that you speak much better than you sing Sean <laughs> Mendez. help me it's like the walls are caving in sometimes I feel like giving up Laying on the bathroom floor, feeling nothing. I'm overwhelmed and insecure. Give me something. I could just take to ease my mind slowly. Give me a drink, just have a drink, and you'll feel better. Just take her home and you'll feel better. Does telling me that it gets better, does it ever? Help me. It's like the walls are caving in. Sometimes I feel like giving up. No medicine is strong enough. Someone help me. It's crawling in my skin. I'm looking through my phone again, feeling anxious, afraid to be alone again. I hate this. And all of these, whether it's Steve Hawkins, whether it's David Berlinski, whether it's Steve Jobs, whether it's Sean Mendes, the answer doesn't become God. We've so eliminated God from the equation that they don't turn to Him. And yet this criminal who's there dying on the cross beside our dying Savior so sees something in Jesus that he knows that Jesus is vitally connected to God and so then he asks one of the most audacious questions in all of history Jesus um, do, do you have it in you to remember me? When you come into your kingdom, the cross was a lonely place. Typically, the only people that came to watch you die were your executioners. You were your father's embarrassment. You were your mother's heartache. And this criminal probably forgot or or probably felt incredibly forgotten alone by himself. Jesus. I know I, I know I don't deserve it, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? I, I don't know if you've ever felt forgotten. Maybe, maybe you have. I'm confident this man did. That's why being remembered is so important to him. And what an incredible request. Somehow as he's watching Jesus die, Somehow, as the wrath of the Father is being poured out on the Son, somehow, as Jesus has going through and is going through the excruciating torture of the cross, somehow, this man realizes that Jesus is so connected to God that he knows the only hope I have is to ask Jesus to help Help me. Is that not incredible? This is it. The The only hope I have is Jesus. And so he musters up the courage after rebuking the other criminal, to look at Jesus and say, would you, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? Because he's seen that whatever Jesus is doing is good. He's seen that whatever Jesus is doing is full of hope and peace and love. I'm sure there was a moment where he wondered what Jesus would say. And Jesus, unlike anyone else, would have every right to say to that man, go to hell. Because that's what all of us deserve. You know that, right? All of us equally deserve hell. All of us equally deserve damnation. You see, humanity sinned. We've sinned against God. Adam and Eve first sinned. But we sin all the time. We sin in our bitterness. We sin in our resentment. We sin in our greed. We sin by looking at pornography. We sin in our lust. We sin, we sin, we sin. And that sin drives us from God. It separates us from Him. Because God is holy and can't ever enter, enter the presence of sin and so humanity deserved to die and deserved God's wrath upon it. But God so loved us that because humanity deserved to die and we could never, never go through the wrath of God and survive, God, in the person of Jesus Christ, cloaked his deity with humanity. Is that not incredible? He cloaked his deity with humanity to become the solution to our problem. And the death we deserve to die, he dies. So that the life he deserved to live, we get to live. The death he deserved to die, we deserve to die, he dies. And he dies for us on the cross. He does so. He cloaks his deed with humanity. I mean, imagine that. The one who called all things into existence. I mean, Colossians tells us everything's been created by Jesus and for Jesus. He decided, he determined that he would be placed in a woman's womb. He was there for nine months. He was born and he was helpless. He could not eat. He had to be fed. He had to be changed. He had to be birthed. That's how much Jesus loved you. Do you know that? He delights in saving. Is that not good news? God delights in saving. He's not reluctant to do so. And he would stop at nothing to save you. He wouldn't let Satan stop him. On that cross, Satan threw everything at him. He wouldn't let sin stop him. The one who was sinless, who'd never done anything wrong, on that cross, uh, Corinthians tells us, became our sin so we could become his righteousness. And so the wrath of the Father is poured out on him. He wouldn't let Satan stop him. He wouldn't let sin stop him, and he wouldn't let death stop him. The great physician would bleed. The author of death would die because he so wanted you to experience his love and grace and hope and peace that he would let nothing stop him from saving you. Praise his name. Nothing. And on that cross, in these moments, that criminal realizes that this Jesus has got a kingdom And he realizes that the kingdom that he's lived for, the kingdom the criminals lived for, is going nowhere. And the kingdom that Jesus is a part of, in fact, that Jesus is ruling, is a kingdom he wants to be a part of. He sees that in his Savior's dying moments. And then Jesus offers the answer. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. What a great Savior. That criminal is not about to become a missionary and go and tell people about the love of Jesus that he just granted them. That criminal is not about to go to his family and tell them about what Jesus has done. That criminal is not about to become an apostle and write an epistle in the Bible. All that criminal is going to do is die. That's it. All he's going to do is die. And Jesus saves him. Why? Because Jesus loves to save. He loves to save. Jesus didn't save you because of what you can do for him. Jesus did not save you because you are good. Jesus has saved you because he is good. And that changes everything. Now, as we live and as God grants us grace and strength, we live for him. And we're people who see the kingdom of God through the power of the Spirit brought here. Amen? But God didn't save you because you would do that. God saved you because he delights in saving people. He loves to do it. He's not reluctant. He's not hesitant. He loves to. He loves to save religious people. I I worked for a plumbing company for six summers going through university and part of high school and. It was a great company. I mainly worked in the septics and cisterns, and that really says I grew up in the country. And some of you are like, what's a septic? You don't need to know, it's fine. <laughs> but it's where, when you're in the country, you flush your toilet, it goes, right? Septic, right? And, uh, and it was sometimes a very disgusting job when you were putting a new septic in over top of an old septic on a 40 degree day with bugs everywhere, it was delightful. Yeah, you don't have to picture it. And uh, I, lived, I lived through it though on several summer days. And Alvin Laidman was an awesome man. Wasn't a godly man. But he was a mainline church attender. Faithful. Taught Sunday school. Would take uh, time off from his busy schedule to, 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 to teach in the vacation Bible school. And, and, um, and yet, didn't know the Lord. Did not have a saving relationship with the Lord. I would sit and talk with him about the Lord, but it was just so hard. I mean, he was a good man. I remember times when... When something would be done wrong, one of the other plumbers or somebody would make a mistake, and Al would would go back and fix it. He'd never have anything be done wrong in his name on it. He'd go back and fix it. He, He was a man of integrity. I remember one time they dropped off stone that you bury in these septic beds, and it was the wrong size stone by a quarter inch. I mean, I couldn't even tell, but he knew. And he knew that that meant the septic wouldn't work as well as it should, and he told them to come and haul it all back. And they argued with him and he said, I will not. Because they said, it's just going to be buried. No one will know. And he said this, I will know. That was who he was. My wife and I maintained friendship with them over the years and had them over and they had us over. And I was at his deathbed. He was dying with cancer when he was 80. And about two weeks before he died, I, I looked at him and I said, oh, What are you afraid to die? And he said, I'm terrified. I said, Why? He said, I don't know if I've been good enough for God. And that night, I shared with him that none of us are good enough for God. That we need Jesus to save us. And I walked him through the gospel in several passages. And that night, God saved him. Powerfully saved him. I mean, so much so that the chaplain the next day told me that there was such a difference in his life. And the night Elwood died, about two weeks later, he took my hand. He had big hands. He used to dig, like, hydro poles, the holes for them, by hand. By hand. Right? For a dollar a hole. Whew! Anyway, he took my hand and he said, take care of your family, take care of your church. Thanks for becoming a friend. I'm not afraid to die. I know I will go to be with Jesus. I prayed with him that night, I left, and the family called me and told me that an hour later he would passed into God's presence. Because God loves to save. He loves to save people who think they're good and don't need the Lord. But he also loves to save people who don't think they can be saved. I remember meeting Alex on the streets of Hamilton. I I met Alex one night. People were praying that I would actually meet him. I found out that week that they were doing so. He was 17. Mom was a prostitute in our city. Dad was a drug dealer. Spiked hair. He was benching about 350. Studs on his body. Makeup all over him. And I met him that night. And I was sharing the gospel with him We were going back and forth about life and God and his existence And I thought at one point he was just going to hit me And I knew that I wasn't benching 350 and it wasn't going to be pretty Right? Hey, you laugh like you know that too Anyway, it's fine So there we were, right? And in the middle of that, God just broke in and that night saved him Saved him And he's walked with the Lord ever since When his mom died a number of years later I took the funeral and I was walking away from the internment As I was walking away from the internment his grandfather, not a believer, collapsed on me and said, I tried so hard, I tried so hard, but her life was so dark, it was so dark. He was weeping. And then he looked up and he pointed at Alex and he said, but there's the light in our family. There's the light. God delights to save. He delights in doing so. A few weeks ago, I went to go for a run. I normally run in the mornings. I do so several times a week. I know it looks like I should run more. My wife tells me already it's fine. She's like, we're now at the place where I have to, I have to kind of stagger my runs so I can go eight kilometers one day, I can go three kilometers one day. And then she said, we should get you a bike. So I got a bike. And when I got the bike, I tried this bike because I thought I'll, I'll cycle. I, I rode this bike around, sport check. I stopped. And the, literally, the 18-year-old guy was like, hey, we should get you a bike that's more suitable for the strength of your frame. <laughs> I mean, I have never been told I'm heavy in such a nice way in my entire life. We should get you something that's more suitable for the strength of your frame. I'm like, should I give you a tip or should I hit you? I'm not sure, right? <laughs> so I normally run in the morning. So I had like a 6.15 meeting and I just thought, I'm not going to get up at 4.30 to run. I can schedule my day around, you know, because you have some time as a pastor to kind of work out your day. I'm going to run at lunch or I'm a lunch meeting. So I rarely run at lunch. Like, do I do it three times a year so I run at lunch? There's a trail. I, I, I run from my house to the trail. I run back to my house, right? Within kind of a couple hundred feet, I stop and I walk. But I, I, I'm a creature of habit, so I do the same thing all the time, right? Except I mix it up for my wife's, you know. Anyway, I'll stop there. Um, and, and I got to the end of the, of the trail, and it was still run to my house, and I felt like the Lord just said, stop. And, you know, you ever have just God's Spirit speak to you? And I just clearly felt stopped. And I'm like, what? And, I, and for a moment, you're like, is that you? Right? Stop. And So I stopped. But I never stopped there. And literally 30 seconds later, this guy comes off to me. Now, I'm dripping wet with sweat in like 32-degree weather. And he's like, are you a pastor? I'm like, yes. <laughs> yes, I, I am. And, and he's covered in tattoos, and I can see he's cut himself hundreds of times or everywhere. And he says, my name's Corey. I'm 21 years old. I heard you speak once when I was 15, and it impacted me. And... Uh, He said, I've been incarcerated, I've lived on the streets. My my whole life has been a mess. And he said, I I was going to start using today. I just looked up to heaven and said, Lord, if you're there, would you just send someone my way to let me know that you care, that you love me? And I decided to take a walk on the bay. I've never been here before. So there he is in a place he's never been. there I am in a time I never go. Because God has a way of delighting and saving people. He does. So I walked with him for an hour... I prayed with him. I quoted as much scripture as I could because I don't carry a Bible in my sweat gear, right? And didn't have my phone on me because that's just gross. And, and, uh, and so, you know, I'm praying for him after spending about an hour with him. We're done. I'm still dripping wet. He looks at me, gives me this great big hug. And I'm like, man, I stink. I know I stink. And he wouldn't let go. I'm like, well, now you stink, right? Like it was, but God delights in saving. When I was four years old, God grabbed a hold of my life. And maybe your story is like one of the first three I just told. Maybe it's later in life, maybe it's one of those dramatic stories. Do you know every story is a dramatic story? Because every story is a story of God saving someone. And when I was a young kid, God grabbed a hold of my life and said, I'm gonna save you. And He touched my heart and He changed my life. And I can tell you as a 46-year-old adult, I know where I was headed because I know my heart. I was headed for hell, except that God intervened. Praise his name. And he delights in saving, and he loves to save, and he longs to save. God loves to save. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've forgotten that. Maybe life has just gotten so busy that you've forgotten how much God loves you. You just kind of get into the routine of life, you get into the busyness of life, and it's like, whoo, right? Today, from this incredible encounter that Jesus has in Scripture, I want to remind you that God's love for you is immense, that He stopped at nothing to save you, that He longed to be in relationship with you, and that He wouldn't let Satan, He wouldn't let sin, He wouldn't let death. He was forsaken on the cross so you could be welcomed into the family of God. He was abandoned so you could be adopted. That's what He's done. On the cross, He went through a God-forsakenness that none of us ever need go through. Because when He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As He left, He told us that He will be with us always to the very end of the age. Is that not great news? We have a god who went through the torture of hell and a God forsakenness and abandonment that we never ever need experience so that we can be welcomed into the kingdom, we can be adopted into his family, and we can experience the presence of his spirit every day. What a great God. He delights in saving. He loves to save. And for a man who was going to do nothing but die, he saves him because he loves him and he loves to save. And the encounter, I believe, is recorded for us so that We know for all of eternity that he just loves to save because he loves to do it. What a great God. He just wants you to be with him. He wants you to walk with him. He wants you to be in his presence. He wants you to know how much he loves you. John Stott says this about his suffering. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for a cross in the real world of pain. How could one worship a God who is immune to it? I turned to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, nails through his hands and feet, back lacerated, limbs wrenched, brow beating from thorn pricks, mouth dry and intolerably thirsty, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That is the God for me. He set aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. And he did it for you. I like to say this. God treated Christ the way I deserved on the cross so that God could treat me the way Christ deserves in judgment. God treated Christ the way I deserved on the cross. Christ experienced the wrath of God. Christ experienced hell. Christ experienced God forsaken us. That's what I deserved. So that one day when I stand before Him in judgment, and I will, we all will, I will be treated as Christ deserves. When God sees us, He sees His Son. Is that not great news? When God sees us one day in judgment, I will be declared innocent because all of my sin, praise His name, has been covered by His blood. And I will be welcomed into a place where there will be no death, where there will be no disease, where there will be no temptation, where Satan will not be allowed, where sin will not enter, where death will have been vanquished, and I will enjoy Jesus, we will enjoy Him as its centerpiece forever and ever and ever. And who gets to go? Anyone who comes to the recognition, the realization that the only thing they got left is to cling to Jesus. That criminal dying on that cross, realized there's only one hope left for me. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus. Man, I know I don't deserve it. I know I haven't earned it. But do you somehow have it in you to remember me when you come into your kingdom? Could you imagine that moment for that criminal? I tell you the truth, he says, you could depend on this. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And maybe you think your goodness was going to get into heaven. It won't. Only the blood of Jesus Christ will. Maybe you're sitting here today and you thought that you're too far gone. There's no way Christ could love you. No one is too far gone. Jesus would delight in saving you today. Maybe you're sitting here today and you thought that, well, it's all that pornography, it's all that gossip, it's all that bitterness, it's all that, the answer is Jesus Christ. And for anyone, anywhere, at any time, including you today, when you come to him and say, Jesus, man, my life is a mess. I need you. Do you have any need to remember me in your kingdom? The answer from heaven is always the same. I tell you the truth. You will be with me in paradise. What a great God. He never turns anyone away. He'll never say heaven's too full. He'll never tell someone that they're not good enough to get in. Because His goodness, His grace, His love, His peace... His shed blood is enough for any and every sin. That is our Savior, Jesus Christ. And today as I go, if you're walking with the Lord, may you be reminded anew of his great love for you. And if you're sitting here today and you haven't yet come to that place where you've cried out to him for salvation, today would you ask him to save you? And would you know as you do, he will delight and welcoming you into his family. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.